Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. My next guest is a gentleman by the name of Ryan Nidell. Now, Ryan's a unique individual. You know, we've had a lot of entrepreneurs on this show, people who've bought and grown and sold and, and you know, done it multiple times. And while Ryan certainly fits that bill, Ryan's managed to do a lot of other very cool things. I mean, when we talk growth of companies, he's managed to seriously scale businesses into the eight and I think potentially even nine figures, certainly across the multiple entities he's worked with. But he's got a real heart and he's got a real sense of what makes the business owner and the entrepreneur tick. You know, it's the, the various personal and individual challenges that face us as we go on this business journey that ultimately defines our outcomes and where we ultimately land. So, you know, I, I think you're going to enjoy this episode. You know, there's so many really powerful tips on how to enter, grow, and ultimately exit your business. But you're also going to pick up a few of the insights from a guy who's been there and done it. I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Ryan Nadell. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Thanks for having me, Simon. Really appreciate it. No, my pleasure indeed. And uh, I believe you're dialing in all the way from Ohio. Is that right? I am. The, the great city of Columbus, Ohio. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm hoping to get over there soon, actually. I'll be in the States back in, uh, in May. So, uh, well, hold on. So, yes. What, what's bringing uh, you to the States in May? You, got, you can't just drop that out there and, and walk past it. What's bringing you here? That's a, that's a heck of a travel for you. It is. It is. You know, I usually get over there once or twice a year anyway, but uh, uh, there are some conferences I want to go to. We are um, partnering up with a bunch of people as well on how to um, get the whole buy, grow, sell message out there, you know, run some different events ourselves in the future. But, um, but you know, the, pr the primary reason to get things kicked off is, is attend some conferences, continue to meet some other amazing people, um, and, and just continue to grow that network. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's basically it. I love it. Thanks for sharing it. I found it so fascinating as we go down this journey that it feels like so many people from the U.S. don't travel outside of the U.S., but yet I get the privilege of speaking to individuals like you and like, oh, yeah, I'm coming twice a year. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm also in the U.S. all year. So, so <laughs> interesting. Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing. I, I worked for a U.S. company for a number of years and, um, and, and, and it was a good experience. You know, like we, we, we were often left alone to do our little thing in this quirky little country, Australia. There goes, we like you guys. You're just always a bit quirky and a bit different, so we'll just let you do your thing. Um, but but what, what we what I found was that, I mean, people sort of talk about uh, the US. Maybe a lot of people in the US not traveling as much, and I always say to people like, it's a funny thing, you know. The US is a big country, land landmass wise. I mean, Australia is as well. But I, I find the US has everything you could possibly want in terms of the type of climate, topography, geography. You want snow, they've got snow. You want jungles, they've got jungles. You want desert, there's there. Like, so I think for the types of holidays people want, it, it's in their backyard, you know, 
<laughs> I say backyard. It might be a four or five hour flight away or whatever, but it's but it's all there, and I I kind of get it. I mean, it's um it's it's easy for people to stay local in the U.S. Absolutely, but I find I find it also fascinating the the lack of cultural experience and that we get right. It, there's certainly the the landmass and the, the holidays and the travel and the, that sort of experience, but you know to be able to spend a little time, you know, whether it's all the way in Australia or you know at least in in Eastern Europe, there's just so much rich culture and so many different ways to start looking at business as well, right? It, it's the universal language, but it's so different the way you know look at something like Italy and and some of the 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 cultural nuances to business that go on there, it's, I think there's a lot that we could learn from that. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it's it's funny how a slightly different perspective on the same issue can deliver very different outcomes, right? Absolutely, it is. Yeah, cool. Um, well, Ryan, you know, before we move on to that, let me extend the invitation that if you do decide to come to Australia, please, you know, I'd, I'd love to host you in Sydney and take you around. I, I'm extraordinarily biased, but I think Sydney is the most beautiful city in the world. So I, <laughs> I'd uh, be very, very happy to take you around and show you some of its spots. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And if, if on your journey to the States, we happen to cross paths in Salt Lake City, in Phoenix, Arizona, or here in Columbus, Ohio, I'd extend the same offer to you. Yeah, oh, well, thank you. It's very kind of you. Um, Ryan, maybe we could kick off, like, just for our audience here. Maybe you could give us a little bit of background, you know, just uh, I know I know you've done a lot of transactions and, and we do pick on transactions on this podcast. Um, but I do think looking at your bio and your profiles, really a lot of what you do is focus on on growth, you know, which is really exciting. I mean, I think, you know, most of our audience, they're business owners, right? They're, they're probably good at what they do, but this idea of growing your business and whether you're trying to get incremental growth or do the big 10X and blow it up, like I think there's a lot of questions that go on in people's minds about how to do that. So, you know, and, and I think I love with your profile too that you've also exited businesses. So you've you've done the full buy, grow, sell, you know, journey and and crazy enough, you know, maybe to jump back on the merry-go-round and do it a few more times. So, uh, so yeah, so maybe, maybe you can leave with a bit of your background and we can get into some of those stories. Yeah, I'd, I'd be honored to, Simon. So I, I think so much of this starts with with university, right? I studied mechanical engineering and right, math and science came, came second nature to me, but it wasn't so much about that. It was the way to laughingly reverse engineer into what you ultimately want as a desired outcome. I mean, it's a thought process. I, I never use it in the practical application of the business world but I use it in the thought process uh, all, all the way into today. So, you know, stepped out of university and then stepped into the illustrious world of automotive sales, right? I was essentially a used car salesman when you really call it what it is. That was a very short window of time, but worked into the automotive management. So started running luxury automotive dealerships at, at a young age. And that eventually led to my first entrepreneurial journey. There was this, there was this transition that happened, Simon, where the money was good in, in we'll call it the car industry. But I was working 89 80 hours a week. I had no equity in the business. So it's, I have two full-time jobs. So I'm really making half as much as I think I am by working twice as hard. And there was this, yeah. there was this aha moment of, man, I don't, I'm still a young man at, at, at heart. And certainly back then I was you know, 25, 26 years old. And just there's got to be a better way to exist in this. And that, that led to the ground floor of a startup. And first, first entry point into a startup. And it was a web hosting company. Didn't know anything about web hosting, didn't know anything about direct response marketing, didn't know anything about those rapid growth businesses, but came on, we had 10,000 clients. About 24 months later, we had 580,000 clients as I was sitting in the CEO chair and helped sell it wow. on to a subsidiary of GoDaddy. So that was my first, first entry point into capital raising and you know the, the whole, I'll call it M&A process or, or, or the sell side 
sell-side deal and so many lessons from that of all the things you're not supposed to do, right? Talk about a, an expensive education, but it's something that's valuable into this moment. And then Simon, that, that led into, gosh, thinking I had the Midas touch at 29 or 30, started a high-risk merchant processing company, and I was flat broke by the time I got to 30, 31, right? Rental properties in foreclosure, you know, vehicles repossessed, just took my eye off the ball and didn't, didn't adhere to one of the principles I live by now, which is, right, we have that blind side. I'm, I'm, I'm more of a sales and marketing type of, type of guy than I am finance and ops, but I, I've kind of worked those, worked those in parallel. And so I know if I'm jumping into a business, if I'm focused on the optimization, the growth, I need to have a really strong finance and operation partner with me because I need to play off that, that correlation back and forth. And it was a really good lesson from that time in life. Then I went on to a custom clothing business, right? I became a haberdasher, learned, learned, wow. learned, learned suiting and, and, and all that goes into wool manufacturing, bought into a wool manufacturing facility in Huddersfield, England, grew this company and did an owner finance deal to my head of sales then license an app that, that helps shorten down the supply supply chain and, and uh, the cash to cash cycle. So still have that in maybe 2000 people's hands right now or so. Yeah. So a CBD company in 2016 grew and sold that to a private equity group in 2018 and then jumped into consulting and now own, <laughs> own a handful of different businesses in different capacities that are all to me. I like I like that again, that growth side, that strategy side, but all very intentional towards some sort of, of capital gains or liquidity event. I'm not, I'm not the buy and hold on to something for forever and, and pass it on to my kids. I'm the, how do I get the highest velocity of capital and, and the return on investment? And, and like you said, hop on that merry-go-round and keep riding it over and over again. I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, and, and I love the, the fact that, you know, you said your sales and marketing expertise, and obviously that's seen you through various different businesses. You know, I, I, I think a lot of people limit their own beliefs, you know, about themselves because they'll say, well, I know nothing about that industry. You know, I don't know, I don't know anything, so therefore I shouldn't be going in there. Whereas, you know, you've used a skill set that kind of transcends that issue to allow you to really kind of go into anything you want. Well, that, that's, that's spot on, Simon. So what, what's happened is in 2000, late 2018, I came on as a consultant to a, to a company based out of Salt Lake City, Utah, a company called MIT45, and they sell a consumable good. The company was five, $6 million a year in revenue, and it had, had flatlined, right? Really really good product, really good values, but the, the owners were just hit a, hit a glass ceiling. They, they were burnt out. They'd been at it for eight or nine years and just, gosh, we want out. And I didn't come in to buy it or invest in it. I came in to help them clean up some of the, the issues that would be required to sell the business. And lo and behold, as that happens, I eventually step into the, uh, the COO chair and then step into an equity partner chair and then step into CEO, then managing partner. And shoot, as luck would have it, last year we did just under 70 million in revenue with, with all all equity still in house and, and still the primary focus on that for me is I'm leaning into sales and marketing over and over and over again. I didn't know anything about the industry. I didn't know anything about the product. And up and quite frankly, until last year, I paid very little attention to it. It wasn't that important to me. It was, man, there's all this optimization in these two areas that I can focus on. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. I, I, and, and congratulations. I mean, that's amazing growth. Um, you, you kind of raised an, an interesting topic for me because we're in this sort of world now, and, and and I think this has accelerated over the last ten years. Where you know, we're all everyone is hearing about VC funding and startups and angel investors and all these kind of cool buzz terms. And 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 I guess I go back to my sort of investment and banking days, and I go, well, yeah, but equity is really expensive. Like, I mean, okay, you've got a startup idea, you've got no money, you've got a brilliant idea, you're super passionate. I get it. There's 
there's a place for investors in that kind of world because, you know, even startups need a little bit of money to get going. But do you have a view, broad or not, I guess, around using equity versus debt versus simple operational efficiencies to sort of try to drive growth? I do. And I, I feel like we might be cut from the same cloth here. I think that the that the surplus and dry powder that has existed at least stateside here in the US from right, kind of that, that big boom after the last recession from, right, we can look 2008, 2009, maybe 2010, but you have this incredible window of, right, the better part of 10 or 11 years in which it just felt like money was so easy that people lost sight of what it really meant to, to dilute the equity in your company by taking external funding. And it was so you start with that VC world of, oh, well, I'll just go out to Silicon Valley and I'll, I'll pitch an idea and sure, I'll give up 20, 30 percent in, in round A. And, and people haven't had any sort of intentionality behind you know the, the seed round and all the way up to maybe D or E. And so they're sitting around as a founder with no formal education in this, and they're left with you know 6 percent equity on a billion dollar company. And while that's still important, is it really? And, and that's, yeah. that's its own level of questioning to it. And then you know taking a look at that, that private equity side of the world, Right, that has its own play and nuance to me at scale. I think that's more of, to me, when a when a business hits critical mass and you don't know that next step. I like the PE play of bringing in somebody, taking you know sixty percent, seventy percent chips off the table, knowing they're going to grow the business by a factor of three or four x. Then you get a whole nother capital gains event because, at least again stateside, the success rate in PE is ninety eight, ninety seven percent. Right, they they typically don't miss all that much, but across the board, if it's a startup. I do believe you can be able to bootstrap through operational efficiency. I mean, I think quite honestly, as I look at some of my counterparts, they get enamored by the fancy office, the, you know, the, the great view, the incredible furniture. And it's like, hold on, in today's economy, for, the mo for most of what I believe we need, product market fit, market message match, a computer, a way to sell something, and maybe a cardboard box to start with. Like, quit worrying about how it looks on social media with your fancy office and your fancy suit and all. There's a place and time for that. But don't be so proud that you're giving up equity when, you know, again, up until very recently, debt's been very, very affordable, right? I mean, and yeah. even right now, yeah. we have the conversation that I think debt still, if we look at the, the past 60 years, debt's still actually affordable right now. It's not, it's not at the all-time lows. It has been, but it's affordable. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at long-term rates around, you know, whether it's 90-day bank bills and longer-term bonds. I mean, seriously, it's it's money is still very, very cheap. And so, you know, I think I think understanding your options, I think, for most business owners, and, and that, by the way, I, I, I think is not just understanding whether it's equity or debt, it's actually understanding the nuances between them and even who could be your partner down that pathway. Because, you know, like you said, I, I've, about business owners, you know, they don't, a lot of them don't do this stuff for a living. And then they find themselves in a room with some very nice, charming, smart people who are, you know, talking about all these ideas and opportunities. But I do think to some degree you've got to be aware that these are the, some of the smartest people around when this comes to, it comes to this stuff and they're going to have a plan to make sure they get their returns. And, you, you know, sometimes the business owner finds themselves in a situation where they've given up equity, their life has changed, um, you know, I'll give a different example. I had a client who wanted to do an, uh, an employee share program, which I think they can work fantastically in, in, in the right situation. But when we got down to the, the, the gut, guts of the conversation, I said to him, well, why did you start the business in the first place? And he said, I want to do my own thing. I don't want to answer to anybody. I hate decisions by committee. I <laughs> and I sat there and I said, but you want an employee share program where you're going to basically have a big committee of shareholders. Like, is that really what you want? And 
in the end, he actually retraced those steps and, you know, it, was, it went for a completely different outcome. But it's, I think what it boils down to for a lot of business owners is saying, where, what do I want for myself, my life, my journey? And, and really, how do I start to shape that business to deliver on that goal as opposed to some artificial, oh, we're going to hit this number? Do, you, you know, I mean, there's not necessarily a lot of purpose behind some of those other objectives. Yes. So Simon, actually, I, again, I agree implicitly. I think quite often there's, as I refer to them, accidental entrepreneurs. You might have sold somewhere. You, you came up with an idea. There was some spinoff. There was some opportunity. And by the nature of that, you're, you're wired a little bit differently than some of the people you're associated with. And so if you hit some of those critical mass points, maybe your first seven-figure year or, or higher, all of a sudden you start to put yourself on a pedestal. And whether it's whether it's logical or illogical, whether it's real or not, whether you outwardly project it or, or you don't, it's still that fact of, okay, now all of a sudden I might be the most successful person around and I don't really, I don't want to seem vulnerable. I don't want to have to reach out and have a conversation with someone like you and say, can you walk me through what the difference is between BC and PE and what these terms are and, and cap table? And they've never studied finance. They've never studied investment banking. They've never studied accounting. They just, they're probably to me a salesperson, a, a, again, a, a bit like me. And so by the very nature of that, then seeking help, seeking guidance, seeking solace starts to become more and more difficult until it's not right. And I see this, at least in, in, in my experience, you look, there's those critical, there's those critical benchmarks to me. It's, you know, the, the first million dollar year, the first maybe five or $10 million year, the first $20 million year for a business. And at some point the business does get to that point where you, at least I, I've realized I got to start paying people for information because quite frankly, I don't know what I'm doing, right? It, it, it's, it's past where I've been before. I don't need that pride. And I don't need to adhere to that social construct of saying, I got to be the next, you know, Facebook. I need, you can make a, you can have an incredibly intentional life, a very clear and wonderful life running a $10 million a year business in your, in your backyard, a $5 million a year business in your backyard, in your hometown with, with good net operating income, good cash flow, all, all the equity still in house. You can live a phenomenal life and still have a capital gains event later in the future that can be your nest egg simultaneously. And it's like, you don't have to yep. grow to, to $100 million valuation. You don't need to bring on external funding partners. You can just be a really sound operator and just click right along at three, five, seven percent per annum growth. And it's a phenomenal business. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you don't actually have to have the goal of changing the world to, to be valid and have worthwhile objectives and goals in your life. Like not everybody needs to, as you say, be the next Facebook or do the next, like, hey, live a good life, make a positive contribution to people around you, live comfortably, get to do the things you want. Like that's a great life. <laughs> it is. It is. But yeah. it all starts from, like you said, it's, I think to me, I've been there before, right? If I, if I look at after that first exit, I became enamored with success and I didn't really know what I was actually searching for. I didn't pause to say, What's this all about? What am I hoping to achieve? What's that? What's that target that I'm aiming at? It was just, just frivolously going because it's like, oh yeah, I can make things happen. I'll just make it work instead of, I just call that intentionality. Where what are we? What are we aiming at, and why are we aiming at it? And then, what's the most efficient and effective way to get there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's that method, and I and I've been there as well. Where it, more equals good. Where actually sometimes more doesn't equal good. More, more sometimes actually just equals pain. Um, <laughs> and yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me change gear a little bit here, Ryan. It's it's I, I'm fascinated because the sort of growth you've achieved is is you know really the sort of thing a lot of business owners would aspire to. 
And, and given you've gone into so many different industries, is, is there a particular process you follow when you go into a new business, particularly, I guess, if it's a new area for you? You know, like, obviously, your intention is to make improvements and grow, but h- how do you start to look at a business? How do you start to go about that? Yeah, Simon, that's a, I think that's a really good question. So I, I, I like to say I'm typically the least intelligent person in the room, and whether that's factually true or a perception, it's one of those things when I step into a business, I like to be a student of the business. I like to be generally curious. I like to walk in under the assumption of I don't know anything at all. And sometimes it's, you know, two or three weeks of questions. Maybe it's sometimes two or three months of just understanding. And I'd like to start with that customer journey, right? All the way from the onset of marketing through customer fulfillment, whatever that looks like. And just ask, you know, what are we doing? Why did we do it? How long we've we been doing it for? Who came up with the idea? What was the thought process behind it? And it's, it's, it's a difference to me in, I'm not questioning someone. I'm asking questions to see clarity. And that's, that's one of those things that's the intentions to feel behind it. And then as I look at that, I kind of zoom out and I, I look at a business as, uh, as a table, right, with four legs. I look at it as marketing, operations, sales, and finance or accounting or, or service, depending on how you would look at it. And I started to realize that if I push up any one of those legs too high too quickly, everything slides off the table. And so it's, it's that acknowledgement of, okay, you have staffing issues, you have these things as, as you start ramping up sales that all of a sudden, boy, it's probably going to break some other things, but you need revenue, typically for me, to feel powerful in some of those better decisions. Then I go into operations or finance, then back into marketing. And it's this, it's this slow but intentional shift back and forth of just that, that, that metaphor to me of it, it's a table with four legs that I want to keep. I want to keep everybody seated at the table and I want them to have an enjoyable meal together. And so that's the process of, as I refer to it, rethinking business. It's every new tranche of business, every new level of it to me requires us to, to reconsider what we have thought to make us successful into that moment where I keep referring to, you know, that. To me, I've experienced a, a really significant change from 25 to, to 50 million a year in annualized revenue. The staff that was at 25 million that kind of bootstrapped it and got us there, they're brilliant. They're powerful. I, I have tremendous love and respect for them. But it starts to become a, a different beast when you start looking at, you know, how do you create financial leverage and, and how do you do some of the things, right? SOX compliance and how do you get prepared for different possibilities of, you know, levels of audits and fiscal controls that quite often... You, might not have to do until that point. There might be best practices, but there's not a necessity. There's not a requirement. And so that's that thing back and forth of consistently expanding the knowledge as well as just remain, I'll say, a student of business overall. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the analogy of the table and I've, I've used a similar thing talking about stools. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of, the leg, one of the legs comes out, right? The whole thing falls over. And so, you know, it, it might be a little bit wobbly as one's growing or one's a bit deficient, but it's, it's understanding where those kind of wobbles are and how to address them and you know and, and and to your point i mean i i love this idea you don't want to completely revolutionize and blow up one area of the business because the rest of the business won't be able to cope with it um and i think that's something that a lot of people um kind of miss on that journey um let me ask you a little bit about you know driving revenue i think you know, for most of us, re- revenue is, and, and certainly cash is the lifeblood of the business. It's the metric that we all, it's the most obvious metric, right, on, on where we're going. Um, and to your point before about accidental entrepreneurs, I think a lot of people, they're, they're great at building the widget. They're great at solving problem X, but they're not necessarily sales and marketing people. And so um, I, I guess I'm just wondering if you might have any sort of key tips for business owners out there who are th- saying, hey, we're good at what we want to do but we don't know how to drive an increase in revenue. Yes. So 
to me, when you when you're great at building the widget, when you're great at what you do, but you don't know how to drive the revenue, it becomes paramount that one of the first things you do is hire for your deficiencies. And it's it's you know the the Dan Sullivan book, Who Not How, right? It's so much of this is not you don't need to learn a new skill set. It actually at scale becomes massively inefficient. It's why wouldn't you go to market and find the individual that is elite at sales with a proven track record, right? That that has been further than you've been before. And I don't believe that has to be an equity dilution. I don't believe that has to be any of those things. You pay a good day's wage for a good day's work. You give somebody an upside potential in, in, in growth initiatives that you have. And that right person gets motivated by that opportunity because they've, they've, if they've achieved a heightened level of success and you know they've been a part of a larger organization, they probably almost started to flatline, right? They, they've lost some of that momentum because businesses hit critical mass. And I think those right individuals love the, the post startup phase. And, and a startup to me is more than just time under tension, right? A startup is, what are the capital requirements of the business being met? Are, is there is there the product market fit or market message match? It's some of those things. But post that, quit being prideful. Just go hire the person instead of trying to you know read the series of books and, and continue education. There's a place and time for that. And that's after there's a stabilization of the business. It's not, it's not in the heat of battle. Yeah, yeah, it's great advice. And and this whole point, I, I love what you're saying about hire somebody who's been there and done it and, and is no doubt obviously better than you. But, you know, if they've, if they've punched at a level or a weight class heavier than you, stepping into your business, they'll be able to save you a lot of time, effort. You know, even if you're paying more for that person, they'll save you money because they know how to avoid the pitfalls. Well, yeah, I mean, let, let's make this practically applicable to, to you and, and, and your business, right? You yourself, right? You could, in theory, sell your business completely solo. You, you don't need somebody that's been there before because someone will buy what you have built. But that difference in having someone that's been there before that knows exactly what you're about to, to go through, if it, if it keeps your multiple of EBITDA, you know, even a quarter of a percent higher, it's worth every dollar that you're going to invest in it for the small amount of the success capital that will transfer hands. But I see these people are so prideful that it just refused to look at that. If, no, no, I got it. My friend sold a business. It'll be okay. Like, well, it will be okay. You'll still succeed, but you don't know what you don't know, right? There's that, that, that blissful naivety that we all walk around with that it's you just invest in somebody that's been there that, like you said, punch up in a weight class, you step down and it's, it's a fun game to play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting one. I, I um, was involved in a, in a renewable energy business for a while, and there was this common joke that used to run around because it, it just happened too often where you'd be chatting to somebody about solar. This is back in the days before solar was so ubiquitous. But you know, somebody would say, oh, look, um, my neighbor, John, he's a really smart guy. He's told me solar's not worth it. And you go, oh, okay, great. So what does John do? Oh, he's a plumber, but, you know, <laughs> he knows about stuff. I'm like, Really? Like, <laughs> you're asking the plumber about the solar. Like, I mean, okay, John, maybe he's a, he loves solar and he's researched it or whatever. I don't know. But, like, there needs to be a fit, right? <laughs> and you want to see that the person has a track record to be able to deliver on the, the specific problem you're trying to solve. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and to me, as you, as you look at some of those, those critical mass points, I think there can be a time and place where you outsource some of those services as well, right? I can look at, you know, a fractional CFO or fractional accounting staff. I think you you can delay that because it's a pretty binary environment, right? Especially, right? It's it's the, the big three financial aspects of business are are pretty consistent across industry, as long as there's a standardization understanding of that. Where 
I've also seen the other side where people look to staff up too quickly. They look to bring too many people on. And right, you have that that compression of marginalization that doesn't need to happen. So now you've choked that lifeblood or the growth capital that you should deploy to me in sales and marketing aspects. And you've you've misappropriated misappropriated that income towards things that to start with aren't aren't inherently necessary, right? I I guess there's different ways to look at that, of course, but it's it's there's a time and a place for everything, and that's why you know someone that's been there is so important. Like, when is the right time to, to do this next thing? And do you have someone that's actually been there that you can bounce those ideas off of? Are you flying blind? You, you, there's too much. There's too many resources available now. You don't have to fly blind anymore. Yeah, it's it's a funny one because I think um, you know if you jumped on a plane and went to Kathmandu and you wanted to climb Mount Everest or you wanted to climb some other mountain. Like this idea of having a guide is a no-brainer, right? Nobody wants to climb a mountain for the first time without having someone there who's done it before. And so, but in business, for some reason, I think a lot of us, you know, and I, I have done this when I was a younger man and before I had enough scars to teach me, but was just, yeah, trying to plow through things yourself, thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a smart guy. I've got a brain. I can work this out. I'll do it. As opposed to saying, it's not a question of whether you can do it. It's a question of whether you should do it. Because maybe there's a better way. Yes. And I, I can almost, almost almost always say there is a better way, right? I think <laughs> totally. at, at least stateside, right? That I can't speak for, for over in Australia, but it's, it's this mindset that has existed in, in my generation, maybe the one right before me, that, that hard work is the only way to be successful. And that, that hard yeah. work requires you to grind things down and work 30 hours a day and and you, you're pulling your hair out and you're doing all these things. And it's like, well, while that might have been true, I don't know that it needs to remain the absolute fact, right? It, it's not that there's not a place and a time to work, work hard, but what is hard work and how much is your focus, you know, being fractionalized because you're trying to wear too many hats? Like, where is that work-life balance? Because I don't think that actually exists, but I think there's linear focus that can create big impact points with the individuals you're sitting in front of in that moment. And whether that's your friends and family after hours, whether that's a call like we're having right now, whether that's you know speaking with investors or potential clients, it's the focus more so than the balance. Yeah, yeah, no, great advice. Um, I'm curious, you know, you've entered a lot of businesses, um, you've been involved in acquisitions and uh, do you have a bit of a view, you know, given that you've sat on sort of, multiple sides of the, the, the fence here. Do you have a view around acquisition as a growth strategy? Do it and do it rapidly. I, <laughs> I, I, I believe it is so much more efficient to buy than build. And, and right, we have that. It took a while for me to get to that thought process. It's probably only been, Simon, in the past you know, maybe three to four years where if someone has already established a business and there's some amount of revenue coming in and there's some level of processes that exist there, all I'm doing is shortening down the time that I'm going to have to go through all those things. Certainly there's a, there's an enhancement if it, if it's cash flow positive, right? There's, I don't know that I want to buy somebody else's issues either, but you find the right strategic, strategic bolt on to a mainstay business. And boy, it's like, it's like putting, you know, gasoline on a, on a fire that's already burning. I, I like to, to have a, a conversation around, you know, you got a, you got a small business, a, a local business, doesn't matter what it is. Let's take a roofing business like I have here. So I own, own part of a roofing company here in Columbus, Ohio. It's not incredibly, you know, massive. It's not going to be, it's that local market business, right? It's, it's, it's nice five, $7 million a year business. And sit there and look at it, right? We're paying for leads. We're paying for fulfillment. We're paying for all these different pieces and parts where 
I can go out and buy a Facebook group that is city agnostic that I can now market and control and I can monetize that Facebook group to offset my lead costs. And no, it's not sexy, but it's buying down my cost of acquisition. And it's another asset that yields another sense of income. And it's it's looking at the the multivariables that that can exist inside of any business where I'm trying to buy um, a lawn care business. I'm I'm attempting to buy a a home repair business because they all bolt on. There's those there's those ancillary benefits that it's just another another you know uh, cog in the machine, if you will. Yeah, yeah. But and you've raised another really interesting question. It's I think this is the beauty of business, right? There's no one particular model or mold that defines success. There's there's a thousand different ways to do things, and so you, each business owner needs to look at their own situation and decide the right path for them. Um, but the, the question I was going to go to there was you know this idea of cross sell versus niching down and and for what it's worth i mean i've seen both work extremely well the example you just gave there of the roofer you you kind of have the relationship with the customer what else can we offer them right yep um do you have any thoughts around that i mean and, and i imagine you've had experience on both sides of that fence as well i have i haven't and so i have to acknowledge this is a little duplicitous in what i'm about to share right it's speaking on both sides of my mouth if you will where I do adhere to, at least in the digital age, if you're buying traffic, the riches are in the niches, right? I think you need to really penetrate a market until there's, I cringe to say market saturation because I don't know if that really exists, but it's, I'm, I'm pushing so hard into, we'll say this roofing industry where it's certain cities, it's certain parts of, of Columbus that might be slightly more affluent. And I'm, I'm doing everything I can to niche down into three specific parts of Columbus. But once I have that penetration, now I need to enhance lifetime customer value. And enhancing lifetime customer value is a different way to look at it, where I can't niche down further to enhance lifetime customer value. I have to start going broad. I have to start looking at a more holistic vantage point. And so I think at different seasons in life, as I call it, or different seasons in business, you should look at it from both perspectives. It's, it's one of those things, even quarterly, what can I do? It, it goes back to some of our first conversations. What, am I, what have I ultimately created this business for? Right? Because if, if, if my goal is to have a you know a, a nine figure exit one day, well that's a different growth strategy and thought process than I'll call it a lifestyle business that throws off a million dollars a year in annualized income for myself. Those are just different ways to look at the same problem and create a different a different solution. Yeah, uh, it's uh, I think that's great advice. It's 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 applying the right strategy for the right time and the the right where where you are in your sort of journey, right? Um, because that may well change over time. It's, I, I think the one thing, and, and I'm sure you see this yourself, Ryan, is that, and, and I'm going to put my hand up here and say I've been guilty of it myself, but it's the getting excited by that next idea or that ne- next stage and starting to throw time or effort and resource at it and, um, you know, without actually having a clear strategy or a, a, have, not having gone through, shall I say, the strategic thought process to decide whether it actually makes sense to start doing that now or not. Yes, yes. And <laughs> I will raise both hands, right? I'm not even really <laughs> one. I've got both hands raised for having done that before. And that's created my own internal process, my own internal North Star that until I have optimized a business unit to the fact that I am no longer a necessary component, right? Where I'm able to truly manage it in five, seven hours a week, right? It's not that it's just self, self-managing. I think that's also a myth. I think everything requires a level of oversight or involvement. But until I get to that point, it becomes fiscally irresponsible to fractionalize my attention and go after another vertical because all I'm doing is 
is pulling myself apart and chasing two different entities because it feels good, right? We're entrepreneurs are problem solvers. It's exciting to to chase that new. I can solve this. I can do this. <laughs> but if you lose sight of the gas of, of the of the powerful force that has created the opportunity to allow that to be a reality, the, the income producing asset, because you're chasing the new shiny object, it doesn't matter if it's a great bolt on. You're going to look around and you're going to be standing on a pile of rubble like I was after the merchant processing business. I've been there. That's why I said I got both hands raised. It's, it's <laughs> no guilt associated with it. But it's, it, I think what, at least how I view exiting a business, it's essentially shoring up vulnerabilities. And people are the ultimate vulnerability to me. And it's not to replace people. It's not that chat GPT is going to replace everything. And, oh, gosh, we, we, we got to be ready for the, the, the apocalypse. It's more the fact of have you documented your processes and procedures to the point that you could grab somebody off the street, put them in the role, and they could figure it out. And it's consistently running your processes through that mindset that start to allow that powerful positioning of you don't have to actually show up at the office the same way anymore because you've pulled yourself out of enough things, enough processes are documented, you've created enough you know, cross-functional training that might still have responsibilities. They're not inherently... Uh, required to operate the business on a day-to-day, which in, in my experience, then if I'm looking to buy a business, I can put the other hat on. That's so powerful to me because hold on, I get your playbook and the playbook's documented. I can I can just plug people in a role and maybe I can pay some people less. I mean, I don't want to you know nickel and dime it that way, but I can create some efficiencies from, from, from consolidation because you've done such a great job of documenting it that it's worth more money to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're creating value. It's Something I was uh, I was explaining to a client the other day is that you know if, if you do want to sell your business, pe- people are buying your future stream of profit. Really, like I mean, it's lovely that you won some awards back then, and you know you've got them up on the shelf. All this sort of story that kind of gets you to where you are today, but you know, they're really they're buying the future, and what they're looking for is how consistent and reliable the, the current results are going to be into the future. So that playbook. That system, the automations, whether it's software you're using or not, gives people confidence around how reliable that machine, that revenue, that cash generation machine actually is. And, you know, the more questions that come into mind about that performance, the more doubt there is, the more risk there is, and the more risk, the lower it's worth, right? The the valuation just keeps dropping. At, at least in my experience, and it, it's not only that that process optimization, but you, you almost run things through that same filter where great, you have your processes documented and optimized, but then you need to have somebody come in and look at your financials. And are those documented and, and approved by a third party, right? Are they audited by somebody that's not internal to your company? Then do you have some long-term contracts with with your your best customers, right? Or is there that consistency and plan, you know, that forecast of, of the revenue and the attribution of that revenue? And then, right, the things that I'm, I'm sure... As, as you're listening, you know yourself, you, you don't want too many vulnerability points, right? You don't want more than 20% of your revenue to be at any one source. You don't want more than 20% of your traffic from any one source. You start looking at those 20% tranches. And these are things to me that as a, in that, that time of consulting for a period of time, and I'm sharing some of these thoughts with people, I want to sell my business in the next six months. Well, great. Do you have the corporate structure set up? Do you have governance set up? Do you have audit set up? I haven't done any of those things. Okay. You can sell in six months, but you're, you're probably going to be selling a little bit short. You gotta, I, I like to plan on that 12, 16, 18, maybe even 24-month sales cycle if we see the kind of that, that launch pad that the revenue is still going to go, go up because it takes, not only you're running the business, but now you have to run really two more businesses. You have to run the process documentation and the sell side. Those are, those are businesses into themselves in my experience. Yeah, yeah. It's a second and third day job, right? 
<laughs> Correct. With all the spare time most entrepreneurs have. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they want to exactly. do it themselves. Yeah. They don't want to, you know, reach out and ask for help, which is a whole like it's it's a, a very fascinating conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, out of interest, you know, with all the various businesses you've been involved in, I'm curious if you have a typical approach to exit planning or thinking about exits, you know, and and and, and you know, gosh, this, this podcast alone, let alone my own experience, I've seen the the full array of I don't go into a business without having an exit plan to the no, it doesn't make sense to have an exit plan because we don't know where we're going to go yet. Like, and there's sort of this, you know, quite of what I call the thousand shades of grey that actually most humans live in, right? So. I don't know. I mean, how, how do you typically approach exit thinking and planning? Yes, Simon. So, so for me, it, it's the exit thinking planning comes down to a series of variables that, just like you said, it there, there's it's squishy as I call it. There's that thousand shades of gray. Where the first time I sold a business, the investment banker that helped me, it was from Texas, and he and he had a saying. He said, Ryan, you know what the best time to sell a business is? And I said, No, I have no idea. He goes, When it's walking right. And what it, when it's walking right is a, is a combination of not only the things we've just shared, right? Do you have some of these these things documented? But then you also have the external factors of what are the capital markets doing? How much dry powder is existing? Is a strategic can a strategic buyer find debt service if they want to acquire you and, and don't have it on their balance sheet? And so we sit there and you try to plan all these variables of well, I'm going to sell it at this time at this revenue for this multiple, and it's almost laughable. It's like to start with just from the very beginning as I step into a business. Is this a business that is going to be a sellable asset, right? It's some businesses to me, I don't say aren't sellable. I think every business can have someone that buys it. And, but I want to look at what, it, what, it, what does the market dictate for this type of business, right? Take a, take a home, again, the roofing business. I mean, you know, looking at that as a consolidated roll-up play because there's fractionalization in the market and there's some logic to that here stateside. But as I look at that, no one's buying a roofing business that nets 300 grand a year has a bunch of 1099 employees and just throws off cash. There's nothing to that business. While it can still be a great business to own, it's not really something that anybody cares cares to really buy because there's no moat. There's no barrier to entry. You throw up a website, you figure out how to generate some leads and poof, you got a roofing business. And so I think so much of that is to start with that thought process of would someone want to buy this eventually? And if they did, what would have to happen to have that be possible? What size revenue, right? And that was one of those fascinating awareness points for me. There's more people want to buy a larger company. It's it's like it's it's this inverted conversation, especially getting into that PU world, which which I like to play around in, right? It takes as much energy to to do due diligence on a six hundred thousand dollar transaction as a six million dollar transaction, but the return on investment capital is is fractionalized. No one's buying the six hundred thousand dollar business in that world. So you're almost in this in between space where you got to have wealthy investors, which probably don't care unless they want to operate the business or it's a strategic buyer. And do they have the capital to do it? Do they, do they have access to the debt service? And so it's understanding that as well. When you jump in of, yeah, I'd like to sell one day. Okay. Well, what sort of, what sort of EBITDA do you have to hit to actually make this a sellable entity that's attractive in the global marketplace? Yeah. Yeah. And attractive to who, right? Like, and, and, and you're talking sort of businesses that are typically a little bit larger than I hundred percent agree with you around the cost of doing due diligence alone. Um, yeah, you're a smaller company. Yeah, there could be buyers, but they'll be very different buyers, and they'll have a very different method of valuation, and it's not going to be higher. <laughs> you know, it's I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm giving an extreme example here, but the amount of times I've had people come to me and go, "Yes, I just heard about, you know, Uber," or they give some random example of some massive unicorn and how they're valued, and 
you know, why can't I be valued like that? And I'm like, well, you're turning over a million bucks. Like you've got very little profit. You've got all these problems. Like it's, you're a different beast. You might be in the same industry, but you are not the same company. So, you know, um, so what is acceptable? If, if where you are today is not acceptable, what is acceptable and why? You know, we're almost going to come full circle here, but what is, what is it that you're trying to achieve? What's important to you as the human here? Because, you know, building a unicorn is, I'm, I'm going to say near on impossible for most people. Um, so if, if, you know, the bigger you go, the harder it gets for most. Well, wh what, is a, what is an acceptable outcome? What is a good outcome? You know, what does success actually look like for you as, as, a, as a human? Well, <laughs> I, I think, again, Simon, that, that's the most impactful part of our conversation so far as I look at it. It's, you're really touching things that speak to me. It's, you have, to me, we'll look at SaaS, right? You, you get yep. these crazy high multiples of revenue in a SaaS business that all of a sudden, I was just on a call today, great business. It, it's generating maybe $200,000 a year, right? It's a SaaS business. And they're, they're showing me their, their prospectus and they're saying, look, we're, we're doing a pre-money valuation at $10 million. I say, how many, how many active users on platform asking some of these questions? And they're sharing their numbers, right? I don't want to divulge too much. And I, I say, guys, I, I'm not really that smart of a guy. I just don't understand how $200,000 a year in top line equates to $10 million in enterprise value when you have, let's wow. say, 1,000 customers on platform. I say, well, well because this is, what, this is what SaaS companies sell for. So yeah, it's a wild yeah. thought process, but how many <laughs> how many people have offered you capital so far? Right, where do I sit on on, on the stack? And they said, well, yeah. said, well, how long have you been at it for? They said six months. Well, that should tell you something there alone, right? Like, but who am I to judge? Right, we all have our own thought process in this, but it's it's very fascinating how you how we as human beings, to me, receive and filter through information. Right, we have that in, inherent bias towards the upside where we don't actually pay attention to the downside quite often, right? We push back on that downside because, well, Uber's, Uber's you know, trading at a, at a multiple of earnings of, you know, 80 to one. Well, so my company's got to be worth that. <laughs> yeah. Or oh, come on, at least give me 40 to one. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's just, it's just throw, throwing it against the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It is, it is interesting because I mean, we've done a, a bit of work, you know, a fair bit of work around SaaS businesses and, and it is fascinating. I, I do love how they do, how they trade and how they're valued. I mean, you know, as a guy who gets involved in transactions, it's exciting to reverse engineer a multiple of revenue into a multiple of EBITDA and go, wow, that's a great result. Um, you know, but, but there isn't necessarily, you know, like yourself, I don't necessarily see a lot of logic in it. You know, I mean, I've sold a couple of businesses and gone, the buyer saw value at that level. Oh, like I'm, and I see it on the metrics and the experience I've had, and I can see that they trade at that level. But me personally, I'm not buying at that level. Like I, I couldn't do anything with that business at that level to get a return on it. So, um, you know, so it's perception of value is a very kind of unique thing. And you know, and and coming back to your point before about you know looking for the right buyers and what do you you know it really comes down to what are the right boxes you need to tick along the way so that the perception of your value is where it needs to be for the right kind of buyers, I guess. Well, absolutely, in my experience. And then you really look at, let's say you found the right buyer. Let's say you've, you've checked all the boxes. What well, have you thought about potentially, depending on who the buyer is, you've now just signed up to have a boss. Are you ready after, after three years, five years, 10 years of hard work that they want you to stick around and they create a level of golden handcuffs for the next two years to have you really run the business 
So now you've got a boss, you've got covenants to hit, you've got all these things you've never even thought of before. And you're super excited because you sold for a 3X multiple, but you didn't really because you got 1X multiple of cash in your hand and everything else is an earnout. And it's like, whoa, like that's that to me, it's that ego again. Like that, that, that logically makes no sense. You should have just kept the business and, and kept running it because you wouldn't have further ahead. But it's, it's, it's fascinating. Well, again, with, with just lack of information or experience, which I have been guilty yeah. of before. None of this is an ivory tower. <laughs> I know these things because I've made the mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, cognizant of time, Ryan, you've been really generous chatting about stuff here. So um, I'd love to just pick on one, one sort of final topic, if we could. Um, talk to me a little bit about exits. I mean, you've exited businesses, you've sold them, you know, various scales to various different types of buyers. What does a good sale process look like in your mind and, and kind of who are the type of people you've got to have around you? What does the process look like? You know, can you walk us through an example of it? I can, and I'll start with with the flipping answer. A, a good sales process is one that actually closes, right? That's, yeah. that's where it starts at. And I think that's one of those acknowledgements that you, to me, you start going through a sales process just because you get the LOI, just because you got that, that nice piece of paper and you're showing your friends, I've sold it. The fund's not even began yet. You're not anywhere near this. And so on that sell side to me, it's, it's, it's having to me that right investment banking partner because you need to me that, that buffer. And it doesn't have to be, made, depending on the size and scope of the business, it could be an advisor versus an investment banker, but it is important that someone that has been there before, but then it's vetting out that person because you, you need to make certain they don't have, you know, I'll say allegiances to both sides of the table where are they watching out for your best interests exclusively or do they have some sort of secondary relationship downstream that could benefit the buyer? And it's not, to me, it's not even nefarious. It's just, it's part of, if you're dealing with a larger firm, they could have some, some, some benefits that you don't quite understand. And so it started eroding that. And to me, that, that becomes critical because you need that person to almost run interference because, right, you go through the process, you, especially on, the, on that, not that sell side, well, you decide you want to sell, you have the investment banker, you, you go to market, at least in my experience, and a good investment banker isn't going to say, hey, I've got, I've got the exact right fit. I like to start by interviewing five, six, seven, maybe 10, 10 different firms to represent me during a sale process because I need to see their experience, some of the track record where they fit. I'm not going to negotiate too much on fees. It's pretty standardized, it feels like at this point, depending on the right size, the right size company. They're going to go ahead and send that teaser sheet out, right? That one pager to, I'm hoping 40, 50, maybe 100 different individuals, depending on the, the, the size and scope of the marketplace. And then it becomes this waterfall down of, let's say they send it to 50 people. Well, then maybe 25 people get an NDA signed. It's about half of them that have any sort of interest. Then I get to have a one-to-one -one call as a CEO with the investment banker and the potential buyer where everybody's asking me the exact same question over and over again, looking for whole <laughs> vulnerabilities, looking to see if they can trust me, looking to see you know, how much BS I might be sharing, which hopefully is none. As a side note, if you're selling your business, there is no point in lying about anything ever. It's going to come out in the wash. It's, it's just delaying and inevitable. You're going to erode trust. If there's, warts on, if there's warts on something, you should probably address them more on the, on the front side than hope they don't get found on the back side. Yeah, yeah. Let, 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 me, let me pose a quick, quick thing to you here, but it's, it's something that I'm always saying to my clients, and I, and I guess supports what you're just saying there about I always had my clients treat me a little bit like your lawyer. If there's bodies buried somewhere, you've got to tell me yes. because they will be found. And to be honest, in my experience, buyers don't expect you to have the perfect business. 
In fact, they know there are going to be problems in the business somewhere. It's only a question of where are they, how big are they? And, and this is the most important point. As the business owner, have you identified them, thought about them, and, and considered how you might solve those problems? Because if we buy this business, we're buying that problem with it. And maybe you come with the business, maybe you don't. But fundamentally, we need to have a solution or at least have thought around that so we can make some decisions. Absolutely. And, and right, putting on my buy side hat for just a moment, actually, I, I prefer that. I'm hoping that some of the problems are things I've, I've solved before that someone's created a diminished value in their mind of what their business is because they do have these problems. And I'm thinking in the background, and I've solved three of those last week. This isn't a problem. This, <laughs> is, this is, I just need to close the door and we'll be fine. So it's more yeah. of the acknowledgement than on the front side. But again, to me, when you have the right partner that's representing you, when just like you said, treat him like a lawyer. They're going to coach you through how these conversations are going to go. They're going to prep you for, for how to say what to say and when to say things if they're good and they're in their corner because they've been there before, right? There's, there's only so many different nuances to the average transaction. And once you've been through, who knows how many, right? You've been through hundreds to my, you know, my five or six, but they all start to feel like shades of the same, same transaction, the same cadence and dance back and forth. It's, it's funny how I was, I was explaining to someone the other day how the framework, as I explain it to people at the very beginning, the framework is the same. The process sounds the same to every single client. Yes, but the journey is absolutely unique because you're a unique individual. The buyer is individual. The way you've come together in the current environment is individual. But the steps, the steps we have to take are still going to be the same. It's, so it's still important to be able to navigate because any one of those steps can cause a deal to collapse. So you need that experience and knowledge to be able to understand, oh yeah, we saw this from that deal and that part from a different deal. And together, here's how we'll come up with the right solution for you. But it's, yeah, it's interesting. There's so many similarities yet, and yet everything is still its own little unique special thing. <laughs> of, of course it is. And, and that, that to me is that part of right going through that, that sell side process to put a bow on that. You get that, you get that letter of intent. And I like, I'm, I'm hoping that I got two or three and I can do almost a silent auction and, and put them against themselves. But that's a hope and a wish, not necessarily something that's going to come, come to fruition every time. But you get yep. that LOI and then the most difficult part is keeping your mouth shut once you have the LOI. Don't tell your friends. Don't tell much of your family. You probably, you're going to have to start sharing some things with your staff because the due diligence process is going to, whatever, whatever level of examination you think you've went through before, you have no real understanding of, of what a true examination looks like until you get through a healthy due diligence cycle. What for me is, <laughs> depending on the size and complexity of the deal, plan on four or six months of just every detail being scrutinized of, of things you've forgotten about from you know two or three years ago that you know some invoice wasn't signed and right, was there a misappropriation of funds? Are, are the reconciliations completely askew? Do we have to rework the financial model? It's, and, and, <laughs> And it, it, this it, is why you need people to help you do it, right? It's like, oh my goodness, it's, I, I had a friend of mine who described it as a three-month colonoscopy that it was awake for the entire time. <laughs> That's exactly right. And they're using razor blades half the time, right? It, 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 it is a painful process, right? And, and then fully knowing you get through that, and then you're going to have another round of negotiation at the final table where you're sitting there, you know, metaphorically, but maybe physically, you're sitting around a conference table with their lawyers and your lawyers. And you're literally retreading the entire deal all over one more time. And it can still collapse in that moment. It's not done yet. Yes. And, oh, man. It's, it's, you, that, that is really, really great advice. The whole, I got the LOI, I'm starting to spend the money mentally is, is a real problem. It's, and it's, we've had to coach so many clients through it. And, and to be honest, even the ones that you coach the most, they're the ones who still just don't get it. They're, 
I've seen people start slacking off. They'd stop turning up for things. They start, you know, it's like, mate, you, you are still, you need to run this business like you're going to own it forever. Keep running it like that. That's, and, and by the way, that's what buyers want to see is that you are preserving, if not enhancing, the value that they're going to acquire. Well, yeah, that, that is incredibly brilliant advice. Didn't even think about sharing that. I mean, it's, you sign that LOI, right? And, and the buyer, me on the buy side, not only am I doing the due diligence, but how are we trending towards a forecast? How are we adhering to the budget? How's the feel and the energy of the business that's still there? Because an LOI is not legally binding. I can walk away because I just, I woke up and I don't like the deal anymore. I don't, and right, there's nuances to that too. That's not always true, but a lot of them are just, you just, yeah, I'm out of it because it doesn't feel right anymore. And it's like, hold on, you're really hitting it spot on, Simon. It's, you got to almost be more intentional in pressing that gas all the way to the floor. How much additional ramp up can you get? Because to me, as someone that's looking to buy a business, it's inherently because I think I can do it better. I mean, let's just call it what it is. You don't buy a business because I, I think this person's smarter than I am. And I think they're more successful than I am. You're buying it because you think you see some hidden value that you can extract out of a business. And so when I see that ramping up, that's, that's motivating. That's exciting for me of, oh man, if they're doing this, I still think I'm smarter than this person. So I can get even more of a return than them. Got to press that gas to the floor. Yeah, for sure. And, and even if the deal, by the way, for those listening, even if the deal doesn't fall over because you've switched off, there is this little thing called retrading, right? Where, hey, they offered you 10 million in the LOI, but over the last three or four months, you've taken your foot off the gas, you stopped turning up, your attitude's shifted, the vibe of the deal, dare I use a term like that, has changed. And people go, I, I actually, now that we've dug into this, I don't think it's worth 10 million anymore. I think it's worth seven. And I tell you what, I, the, I think most business owners, they've reached that point where they've already, they're already checked out, right? They've started spending the money. And so they end up accepting even that deal because they can't see a way, any other way out of that, that problem. And so, and it's unfortunately, it's a problem of their own, their own creation. Um, you know, if you'd stayed focused, stayed sharp, stay frosty, man, like you've got to assume the deal is not going to go through until you've signed the contract and frankly, you've been paid. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, and on the buy side, I'm, that's a strategy on the buy side. It is to yeah. not to drag it out and to be, you know, disrespectful with it, but it, it is that strategy of, look, if everything you presented is exactly as you presented it, I would buy your business for this. But having been through a handful of transactions, I know everything isn't as you presented it. It's my job to find all the things you haven't presented while simultaneously wearing you out enough. You've already told everybody under the sun you've sold the business. And if I can get a $10 million asset for seven, I'm, that's, that's, a, that's a good deal because I was actually probably okay with it at seven. I've, I probably would have I would have bought it at 10. And now it's a $3 million pickup. That's a big pickup, 30%. Absolutely. And this is why the prep phase is so important. Geez, we could do another podcast on that. Um, <laughs> Ryan, I think we're, we're probably at top of the hour here, and I appreciate you're a busy man. You've been very generous with your time. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask you one last question about just your views on success and, and how you personally define success in, in your life and business journey. But um, just before I get you to answer that, are you okay if any of our listeners wanted to reach out and contact you? Uh, are you okay with that? Can they connect with you on LinkedIn or wherever? Yeah, I, I would welcome that, Simon. Thanks for the question. So to connect with me, the website's ryanidell.com. Every social handle is Ryan Nidell. I'm one of those guys. I don't have a course to sell. I don't have something you can buy from me. I have a newsletter where I share what I'm up to, but really any of the resources, anything that I'm sharing, I've probably documented. I, I, I'm an SOP guy. And if I can provide you something to help you speed along your journey, 
by all means, just reach out. I'll be happy to send you any amount of information free of investment. It's, it's to me, it's, it's, it's part of what we do this for is to, to disseminate information, help people learn lessons the, the less painful way than we have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's very generous of you. Um, we're going to put some links there in the show notes. Um, if you do reach out to Ryan, please send him a little note. Maybe let him know that you heard him on the podcast so that he understands where you're coming from. Um, and that would be the polite thing to do, of course. And uh, Ryan, to, to finish up, I mean, you know, what's your view on success for you, for you personally? That, that view has changed pretty significantly, right? I'm, I'm just about to be in my 39th year and, and there's things that are, are different in the level of importance to me. And now success is ultimately a combination of making a, a lasting impact in someone's life that I get to spend time with. And whether that's staff that supports me, whether that's a stranger on the street, that, that's a component to me that, that that is success in the micro. And the macro, it ends up being, I think success ultimately comes down to being able to do what you want, when you want, with who you want, and how you want to do it. And to some people, that's, I want to move off the grid and live in a hut and I, I don't want any material possessions. And that is wonderful success. And to other people, a little bit more like me, I, I want to, I want a private jet and I want, you know, to be able to travel and, and meet people anytime and, and be able to pick up the tab at all costs because I like to, I'm an experiential guy. I like to do those sort of things. And, but shoot, maybe that'll change again, Simon. Maybe I'll be the guy that wants to be off the grid and, and give up all my, <laughs> my material possessions. But in this moment, that wouldn't be true for me. Yeah, yeah. I knew we were cut from the same cloth too. <laughs> well, there's probably a, uh, a an enjoyable conversation over a meal or I don't know if you drink wine, but a glass of wine for me at some point. But uh, <laughs> um, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been really generous. I I've loved your insights. I know people are going to take a lot of value out of this conversation. So uh, really appreciate it. Very great, gracious of you to, uh, to come on. Yes, yeah, Simon, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And I sincerely hope we get to spend some time together stateside when you come. It'd be a pleasure of mine. That'd be good. I'll certainly reach out. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this excellent episode. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed Ryan's insights as much as I have. Um, it's been a, a great episode from my perspective. So um, join us next week for the, for the next episode. And if you need any more information, please feel free to reach out. And that's the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast for this week. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.